Fargo Season 2, Episode 1, Waiting for Dutch is over, the wait is over, and we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hello everybody, welcome to the Fargo Podcast. I'm Josh Wigler, I'm joined here by my hamburger helper, Antonio Mazzaro. Okay then, okay then, okay then. Yeah, this is hockey puck. Yes, send it back. Send it back, send it back, and don't send back this man. The devil always changes. Jeremiah Panhorse, what's going on? Not much. How you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic. Doing really well. Very happy. Fargo has started. We're into it. Massacre at Soup Balls. It's happening. 1979. It's here. It's here. It's here. We're alive. We're alive. One of well, yeah, but who's got the arrows? That's the question. We need the arrows. Well, we're putting them in Reagan. We're waiting for him to show. Oh, okay. That's what we're waiting for Dutch. There you go. (laughs) That's what we're waiting on. So we're waiting on that. We're not going to wait to get started here on Post Show Recaps. Talking about Fargo, we're going to be here all season long. If you guys haven't listened to it yet, we already previewed season two, which was mostly a post-mortem on season one over the weekend. Go to postshowrecaps.com and find that podcast. Postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes is the way to subscribe. We'll have a Fargo-specific feed coming up very soon uh, in the next couple of weeks for now. Let's just kick this thing off. I'm really I'm really stoked to be back in Fargo territory. Antonio, what did you think of the premiere? I was very pleased with it. I, very happy? I, very, very happy. Yeah. It, I, I guess at some point through the premiere, I thought, eh, this is all right. This isn't, you know, this is okay. But then <laughs> pretty quickly things picked up. Business picked up significantly uh, with old Rye in the Waffle Hut there. And then after that, I was I was all on board. Yeah, I was going to say, Jeremiah, do you want to like get some breakfast or something with me? I I know that you're a weird dude. You were probably craving some waffles after this thing. I was. It was yeah, I know extremely that. hungry. Yeah. You know, especially the the blueberry one. I heard about the blueberry one. That's Even though they're fast. frozen this time of year, I'm still yeah, okay with okay. that. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's all right. That's fine. What did you think of the premiere, Jeremiah? <laughs> thought it was fantastic. I mean, the way it was a little unusual, the opening, the way they did it, but I kind of liked it. I think obviously it was just to give us the feel of what time, the time frame of what it is and how the, where the country was at, at the moment. Uh, so it kind of sets things up. But once we kind of settle in, like, like Antonio said, with everything that goes on uh, with the waffles, <laughs> with rye, I immediately felt like, okay, we're here. We are, we're in Fargo, we're in Fargo territory. And it was uh, extremely good from there out. Yeah, I mean, obviously the time period is different. Different characters. Some of them are characters that we're going to see in season one of Fargo, which is set many years later. Lou mm-hmm. Salverson in the mix here, played by Patrick Wilson. So there's definitely connective threads between Fargo season two and Fargo season one. But there's obviously a lot that's being differentiated and not just in terms of the setting and the characters and the time period. But I feel like there's some stylistic choices that they're trying to make that's going to differentiate season one and season two. Like there's a lot of split screen in this episode. Yes. Did, yes. did you notice that? Yeah, absolutely. Almost distractingly so uh, in a couple of moments. I was going to ask you which about one? that. Like when they're investigating the crime scene uh, and you, they're looking outside the, the diner in the in the snow kind of, and one shot is out of focus and one shot is in focus. And I'm not sure why that was there. I actually rewound it and I was like, well, did I, did I miss something? But right. I think it's really there just to establish a little bit different of a, of a style. I did notice there were two different directors listed for this episode uh, on IMDb, which yeah. I thought was interesting. I don't know if that means they had like uh, – Maybe a bunch of reshoots or something, uh, or if they, or if there was something else going on there. But that was interesting to me. No, I hadn't noticed that. Maybe one person was just directing all of the split screen stuff. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. or they each directed half. Yeah, half half an episode or half of the split screen. Like, right, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, one of the directors is is Randall Reinhardt. I think he pronounces it. I think it's something like that. Now he he did. I think he directed the most of the episodes from last season. I think he did three. Okay. Uh, the other one is Michael Uppendahl, which I'm very familiar with him because he has directed many many episodes of uh, Mad Men. So I'm very familiar with his work. But why there was two was very unusual. I'm, I You don't see that hardly ever in any television show, right? Collaboration. Normally, I think when you see it, it means that there there was a reshoot and then the original director wasn't available. And it's something that goes beyond kind of a second unit or a first, uh, first director-like capability. Okay, that makes and sense. so that's why you've got a second one there. I don't know. I didn't notice a, a totally different aesthetic, but I did think the use yeah. of the split screen was interesting. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. just looking ahead at the at the rest of the episodes, they don't have every single director listed for all 10 episodes of season two, but Michael Eppendahl is coming back for episodes three and episode four, and Randall, however the heck he is pronounced. It's like, Randall Einhorn, I think. Yeah. He's from Cincinnati, I believe. Yeah. It is Einhorn, okay. Finkel and Einhorn? Fink, Fink, yeah, I was <laughs> 
Einhorn. Einhorn yeah. is Finkel. Yeah, not on the list for any of these other. You know what's interesting about Randall Einhorn? According to IMDb, he did underwater camera work for the first season of Survivor. How about that? Oh, that's no way. Cool. Are you serious? I'm dead Somewhere serious. in an alternate universe, Rob Cesternino is ringing a bell. Anyway, so wow. that's that, there's a lot. I think that there's some cool stylistic things that are just a little bit different. Uh, I love the way that the that the title cards were were played. Obviously, we start with like the old classic MGM movie feel. Did you guys like that? Yeah, I, I did. It was great. Yeah, yeah. I, it was interesting. This is the second television show in basically a week, Josh, that you and I have uh, podcasted about where we had sort of a prologue scene, which was separate and distinct from the series in general. And I'm not sure if this is going to be a running thing throughout Fargo. Are we going to see the sort of uh, the massacre at Sioux Falls kind of uh, aesthetic of a, of a Western being shot with Ronald Reagan as an actor uh, versus the Ronald Reagan of 1979 is running for president against Jimmy Carter. So I don't mm-hmm. know if we're, if we're seeing that uh, for a particular reason, if it's only going to be in this episode. But I think it's interesting that we've got now two shows in their second season that are debuting, uh, or that are putting the premiere episode out there with a kind of an interesting prologue that's separate from the story that we're going to have to wait to see how it's connected. Jeremiah, thumbs up or thumbs down if every episode begins with a cold open from the Massacre at Sioux Falls movie? Hmm. If like it's done lot. right. Seems like a lot. It does seem like a lot, but maybe if it's done right, I could give it a thumbs up. Right now, I'd be very leery to give it a thumbs up, but I'd have to see how it plays out. But it could. If it ties in very nicely, then I'm okay with it. So what do we what do we make of like the content of the scene? It's this massacre at Sioux Falls. The director is like, oh, 300 of your people died here. And the guy's like, what do you mean my people? Uh, it's a great, I'm from New Jersey, but yeah. uh, the guy's like, hey, listen, I'm Jewish. I know what it's like. I know tribulation, <laughs> which is a, a line that I'm familiar with, of course, every time I make a faux pas. You say that uh, all the time, right? I say it all the time off the air, on the air, just now on the air. Uh, but what, what do you think that this is? What do you think that this is hyping up, Jeremiah? What, what do you think is the significance of this? scene if this is the note that we're starting season two of fargo on why are we starting here i don't know i i was scratching my head afterwards to try to figure out for sure what all this is possibly going to mean it certainly was interesting i mean i by the time it was over i was like okay what exactly is this going to tie in with but i mean obviously it, it's going to somehow or other hopefully maybe after a few more episodes we'll have a better idea of what it exactly is going to mean to the overall plot of this season. What do you guys, what do you think, Antonio? Well, I think it's really interesting because as I was uh, discussing, The Leftovers opens with a similar prologue that is unrelated. And Damon mm-hmm. Lindelof, the showrunner of The Leftovers, indicated that that was heavily inspired by the Coen brothers, uh, A Serious Man, and the beginning scene, the prologue of A Serious Man. And so I don't know if this is meant to be a tribute to the Coen brothers, if this is meant to be something. I mean, of course, the title of the episode is Waiting for Dutch. Dutch is Ronald Reagan's nickname. So they're literally waiting for Dutch in this prologue. But then the next scene that you get, uh, the, the kind of the beginning of the episode, is this opening sequence that has a mixture of archival footage. Jimmy Carter's giving some famous speeches. We see the lines at the gas pump uh, for the gas rationing that was going on. Uh, and we right. see kind of actual footage for, or filmed footage from the Fargo season two. It's very reminiscent of The Departed. Uh, the, the opening of The Departed is very much like that with archival with footage. Less drop- Kick Murphy's, which less Dropkick Murphy's so far. Give it time, they may ship yeah. up to Boston. So yeah, this is uh, this is interesting. Like I don't know if this is a tribute to the Cohen brothers. We talked on our preview podcast here uh, with the showrunner Noah Hawley of, of Fargo, talking about how. It wasn't so much that he just wanted to mimic Fargo specifically, but that he wanted to make a Coen Brothers TV show. And so that every choice they made in the show, they thought, well, what would the Coens do? Like, how would they address this? How would they shoot this? How would this play? And so we have to kind of look at the Coen Brothers films and look at the intros to some of those films and think about this being separate and apart. Um, it doesn't mean that it's bad, and it, and it probably will tie back in. And my guess is... We, we maybe will get more, but if that's the only scene we get from the massacre at Sioux Falls, I thought it was great. I really liked how the show's original soundtrack was being used as a soundtrack of that film, uh, yeah. just in a different kind mm-hmm. of orchestration. Yeah, right. it was great. It was great. Uh, so before we dig into this any deeper, do you want to take any any kind of uh, broad swipes at the, at the premiere before we start breaking it scene by scene? Any characters that popped out at you immediately? Anybody that you just are bursting to talk about, Antonio, as we start to dive into Fargo Season 2 premiere? Not characters in specific, Josh, but I did think it was interesting that there was a, a, a very close connection with Justify, a show that you and I loved and podcasted about 
here on post show recaps. We have a crime family, uh, the Gerhard family with three sons, uh, each of whom has, uh, seems to have very specific characteristics. Uh, and we have a matriarch there, uh, who may have to take a more active role now that her husband, uh, has stroked out, uh, it seems. Yep. So I think that there's a, there's an interesting sort of Bennett family parallel there. And I couldn't just not say it right off the jump because I love yeah. it so much. The season two of Justified, season two of Fargo mirroring each other. I think we're off to a good start. Yes. Good. Yes. Uh, Jeremiah, anything pop out to you immediately? Just something that you really loved about the episode? Uh, I thought I thought Culkin's performance as Rye was great. Uh, he thought he was perfect for the role, and uh, overall, I thought it was it was great to finally get to see um, Molly's mother, Betsy. That was very uh, nice to finally see. And of course, we get to find out. I guess we kind of know now what how her demise was because we didn't right. know how her mother had passed away, and so I guess now we can assume that she probably does die from the cancer yeah um so Kristen that Milioti, who is the mother yeah how i met your mother yeah it just does not end well for her no she's she playing can't. mom character no spoilers no. you you should, i guess you knew that's where i was gonna go with this i think oh my gosh this poor woman she can't have any roles where where she doesn't pass away uh, eventually so it's terrible yeah. and i know this sounds really dumb but did you guys think uh jesse um is it Plemons? Pl- yeah, yeah, Pl- yeah, Is it just me? Since he's kind of bulked up a little bit in this particular role, does he look a little bit like Matt Damon? Oh, I was going to say, the hashtag has to be Fat Damon, right? Are Matt we right? Damon, no! <laughs> oh, he does. Okay, so I'm not the only one. I think that this is a known thing, or at least I've seen it before, and I also believe that he has played uh, a Matt Damon character in a Matt Damon movie. I'm trying to figure it out really quickly which movie it is. It's all the pretty horses. He plays a young version of Matt Damon in that movie. Yeah, oh, so it's okay. been done. It's known. It's a known his, thing. His nickname Jeremiah on Breaking Bad was Meth Damon. That's right. Meth yeah, Damon. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there, there are some similarities there. He sort of looks like. Uh, I'm trying to think of the movie where Matt Damon bulked up. This is not normal Jesse Plemons. He's clearly put on weight for this role. But yeah, Fat Damon. It is. Yeah, Fat okay. Damon. Oh, that's very sad. But there is a lot of great performances, and uh, it was. But uh, there's lots of things to stand out. I'm sure we'll talk about it as we start breaking down the episode. Yeah. All right. So let's let's break it down. We break, we we start with the Gerhards. You know, it's a very Gerhart heavy opening half of the episode. I think this is the crime gang that I think we're going to spend a ton of time with this season. We see Rye. He is meeting up with his older brother. I believe his name is Dodd. Uh, Jeffrey Donovan, who is what's his show? Burn Notice. I never watched Burn Notice. Yeah, I, I think I've, I think I've been told that I missed out. Burn Notice. Yeah. Were you not a burn notice guy? No. I know I wasn't. I've, I've never yeah. seen it. Yeah. Well, all you burn notice fans can now yell at us uh, yeah. because we have not seen burn notice. But Jeffrey Donovan, I know him from other stuff. He was in Blair Witch yeah. Project 2. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> very, very fine film. I've seen him in some, I've seen him stuff too. I think he's going to be perfect though for this type of role. Don't you? Yeah, no, he's great. He seems to, he seems to be really good. He's, you know, he's kind of the older brother. He's the, he's the oldest brother of this gang. He seems to think of himself as the guy who's in line for the throne. Rye does not seem to like this very much. And like you said already, Jeremiah, Kieran Culkin is just fantastic in this part of just like this little wormy scoundrel (laughs) of a little brother who's just getting tooled on all his life. Yeah. Uh, What does he say? He says like, um, you keep saying I'm a Gerhard. That's like Jupiter telling Pluto, Hey, you're a planet. It too. Uh, so <laughs> I, there's just lots of really fun stuff with these two characters. Yeah, Pluto. Which is it's, it's a, f- a funny dated joke. Pluto was still a planet yeah. then, right? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so it's, he's not nah. even. <laughs> that's before we known as the dwarf planet. <laughs> so it's, it's, that's it was hilarious joke. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's down on his luck. He's he's told all sorts of all, all awful stuff. He said he's uh, you're the comic and a piece of bubble gum. It's just brutal. It's a very brutal start for this guy. Yeah, yeah it is, is it just me or is even early on you could tell that things probably are not going to go well for this kid yeah but i don't know i don't know that i thought that he'd wind up with like a hand <laughs> shovel in his gut by the end of the thing like i kind of yeah. thought that he was being set up to be sort of martin freeman-ish weren't you antonio didn't you think that this was going to be a guy who had a little bit more legs past the pilot definitely or like a ziggy sabaka from the wire that's uh that's something that that kind of came to my mind we had a tweet uh from post show recaps on mike bloom about the same thing mike bloom is he uh, is he more of a Ziggy Sabak or is Nick Offerman a Walter Sobchak from The Big Lebowski? And we can get to that when we discuss oh, Nick yeah, Offerman's character. Oh yeah, we're jumping character. ahead, but absolutely. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, I thought it was that. It, what's interesting is, of course, the the and this is going to spoil a little bit about season one of Fargo. So if you haven't watched, you know, make your choice here. I think but, also at this point you've raised the flag, and I feel like that flag is raised no more. Yeah. So so anyway, in the 
in the series one premiere of Fargo, of course, the police chief dies and he's set up to be a major character. We meet his wife. His wife is pregnant. Uh, he's investigating these crimes. He's kind of the boss and he's dead by the end of the episode. And so, yeah, we set up, uh, we set up Rye, Kieran Culkin's character to be a major character. It seems like he's going to be around a while and he's dead by the middle of the ep. Well, he's dead by the end of the episode. Mostly Let's dead. put it, th- mostly dead. They need to go through his pockets and look for loose change. Yes. Well, but unlike unlike the sheriff from season one, though, I feel like we kind of maybe have lost something here with Rye because I thought this character Rye could have been really entertaining to to watch. Right, but I mean, there's there's the you know there's some flexibility with with timelines that could probably occur, and there could still be you know some flashback scenes sure. or whatever could could have. Uh, we could we could still keep Ryan in the mix a little bit, but I I like the idea of it because we already did that. We did that bait and switch with the the main cop in the first episode of Fargo season one, where you're being led to believe that he's a bigger deal than he's going to end up being. And mm-hmm. I like I like using that same trick. I like that Noah Hawley used that same trick. Except except instead of applying it to a protagonist was a more antagonistic character, somebody who you thought might go on some sort of Lester Nygardish run against his family or something or something horrible happens. He's the guy who incites the big bloody incident of the episode and he's already out of the equation. So we right. have Lou Salverson who's going to be looking for this guy and the guy he's looking for is gone. I think that's clever. I think that's cool. Yeah. We don't really have a Lester at this moment yet, do we? I think we've got like a Lester in two parts. Yes, you we think do. so? Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah I, th- right. I think I think we've got two Lesters. I think we'll, we'll get into that. That'll be really fun. Yeah. Uh, but we we go from from there. We see the Greater Gerhardt family. We see my man Michael Hogan uh, having having a stroke as Otto Gerhardt, and he's just classic salt eye immediately. Yeah, great. He's just kind of like barking out his line. Yeah, fantastic. Grind their bones. Yeah, he could be my XO anytime. That guy needs uh, to work more. Uh, he's so great. He, I love when he's, he's just like, uh, he wants them to, to shoot him straight. And she's like, tell me, god damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Tell me the fracking news right now. <laughs> and he just has an awful stroke and yeah, very bad. He's, that's too bad because the, you, in one scene, you, you thought, this is a great character. We got to keep yeah. this guy around. But of course, it is very in keeping with Fargo season one. Uh, and, and, I just love that uh, that every character that kind of pops up in any in these series uh, these seasons of Fargo is a memorable character uh, in in most instances, no matter how long they're on the screen. The judge is the same way. Uh, we get her for kind of one scene, but she's great in that one scene. True, very true, really fantastic. But yeah, I mean, Michael Hogan is so so good, and just in the same way that like I hope Kieran Culkin gets to come back at some point uh, to just have some sort of scene. I hope that Oto either recovers or we get some sort of flashback with him because in that one scene, in like five lines, he was like the best character of the episode for me. Oh, really? Best character just, of the episode. He was I, great. He was. I love him so much. I can't even. I can't even tell you. Well, I can't speak for for Michael's character, but I did hear that there's a rumor going around that uh, Karen Culkin's character. We will have a flashback where you find out he does wet the bed. Oh, fuller. (laughs) Sorry, I had to go there. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm done. Done with the Home Alone jokes. Go ahead. Go easy on the Pepsi, Jeremiah. I know. (laughs) Yeah, we don't want to start getting into your past, Jeremiah. Okay. Animal torture. We don't want to get, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to dig that back up. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's this, you know, we're going to find out later in the episode that there's this internal conflict in this family of, uh, Gene Smart's character. The, the matriarch is going to be, uh, somebody who is considered to be someone who, who could potentially lead this family forward. But the older brother seems to be somebody who's really got his eye on the thing as well. So this, this should be fun. I mean, I'm sad to see Michael Hogan be relegated to bed rest so early and for Kieran Culkin to be yanked off the stage. But I think we've got two really strong strong characters or at least two really good actors in Jeffrey Donovan and Gene Smart to really be leading the way on this storyline. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. So we, we go to the typewriter store. I didn't realize that there's like a real serious market for <laughs> typewriters, but I don't know. Dude, that was a state of art typewriter. Come on now. Yeah, Josh, how else were people typing things? I guess. Were they typing? How much typing was going on? Lots of typing. All, all, the all typing? of the typing. All yes. The typing? Yeah, yeah. That were... thing did autocorrect and everything. Come on. <laughs> Autocorrect? Autocorrect, yeah. It is, it is kind of funny, though, to see this. Keystrokes? This poor guy is just like uh, keystrokes. I like it. This poor guy just uh, touting the future of his business. They're going to be turning on the spigot. And you realize, oh, buddy, like, oh, within, I don't know, 15 years, you're going to be out of business. Like, unless you adapt, you're, nobody's going to want a typewriter anymore. 
anymore. There's he's not making it 15 years. This guy's lucky if he makes it 15 more minutes. He's gonna. <laughs> he's the first person that the brothers are going to come looking for, and he's toast next week. Yeah, yeah, and he's like the classic, like something from The Sopranos, like a bust-out kind of guy where you just, you when he owes you money, you just kind of take over his business, you liquidate the assets, and then you burn it down for insurance. He's the Robert Patrick character? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then they're yeah. going to give his SUV to uh, to their daughter. Oh, brutal. 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 Uh, But yeah, so this guy is buddies with Rye, and Rye is going to, he's going to go and, I guess, intimidate this judge who's blocking funding for this dude's typewriter plan. Is that, is that basically the gist of it? That seems like it, yeah. 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 Uh, So Rye is, he's freelancing because he figures he's always going to be several stones thrown away from the throne. He's never going to be the guy who's going to be sitting on that thing. So he's making a name for himself in this other way. Uh, and I also like, he has this line in the scene when he comes to the typewriter store and there's a guy who leaves and he's, you know, he's flashing the gun at him and the, the, the clerk is like, Oh, he's going to call the cops. He's like, nah, that guy, guys like that. They just, you know, they bark a lot. They're not tough guys. They're not tough guys. I'm a real tough guy. It's like, Oh, this is a man who thinks very differently of himself than reality. Than the world does. Yeah. That's the Ziggy Sabaka angle for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there's definitely a little bit of that type of character in him and we go from there there's a little bit of an extended montage sequence that's having rye following this judge uh and we get to the waffle hut and i think it was this you know as we were waiting through all of this stuff were you kind of wondering to yourself antonio if this if this was working this episode yeah a little bit i i think that i mean if, if we'll go back and rewatch, i think when we've seen a few episodes but especially that opening montage that was showing all the different characters and kind of doing a, a job to kind of introduce all these people very quickly in, in mixed with archival footage i didn't i was like okay we're really biting off a whole lot here uh, but then when we got to the diner i was i was okay this is a perfect setting this is the kind of thing there's a la confidential there's a great late night diner scene that ends uh night owl yeah the night owl it ends in a very dark place place and uh there was a very similar kind of vibe here i just felt like okay this isn't going to go well there's not a lot of people here once that family left i was like okay yeah this is really not going to go well yeah it's bad it's bad so you knew instantly that this was going to be trouble i just had a i mean it seemed like when he when he when he snorted the coke or did the popper or whatever that was in the car (laughs) i was like okay yeah this guy's going to be off the rails this is bad this is bad business for sure on the rails on the rails off the rails all of it he's going skiing Jeremiah, did you think that this was going to be bad news? Yeah, I'm with Antonio. And especially, like he said, as soon as I saw that family leave, I thought to myself, boy, that family's really lucky because uh, this is about to get ugly. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great. And I was feeling bad, too, because, you know, they're showing, you know, several of the people who are working at the diner, the hostess, right. who's all, who's, I know she's freaking out Rye, but she's so plucky and sweet and she seems like a nice person. And then there's the guy who's the cook in the back who we find out has this local legendary uh, high school football status. Yeah. And you just know that these guys are not coming out of here alive. 31, just, 31 yeah. touchdowns? Is that what it was? Is that is that the number? Sounded like it, yeah. Yeah. What What's a touchdown? It's six uh, points. Six yeah. Point. yeah. There you go. Yeah, 31. Still stands. <laughs> His name is Henry Blanton. R.I.P. Henry Blanton. I'm pouring out a little bit here for Henry. Yeah. Pouring one out. And then we get this we get this conversation between the judge and Rye, and we hear the story about Job and God and the devil trying to see if the devil could change Job's devout mind and was not able to do that. And so why should Kieran Culkin think he stands a chance against the judge? It's a very high opinion of herself. I was thinking but. the same thing. Like who in that story, is she Job? Yeah, I guess she's Job. Yeah. She's like, I'm inflexible, bro. Come at me, bro. And he's, yeah. he's the devil. And yeah, you think you're the devil? If the devil can't get me, what's what chance do you have? Well, he's got a decent chance. He's got a decent chance. Yeah. I mean, she, she, she really ups it to 11 in a way that she probably did not have to. Yeah. So with the bug spray? <laughs> yeah. I was just saying, the bug spray. What's up with that? You know, I, I I respect the move. I I like carrying the bug spray just in case of situations like this. But she says you have three seconds, and she doesn't even do the count. Yeah, you got to give her. You got to give at least a hard two on that. Yeah, I think you have to say one, two, three. I yeah. think that those those seem to be the rules. And right. I mean, I, I I guess I'm not. 
I'm pretty familiar with judges from other television shows, also from my career. And I would say that, uh, and also from some of my exploits, but I would say that <laughs> judges are pretty used to thinking that they're in control of everything, but they're also cognizant of the fact that they could be targets and that there are criminals out there. And sure. so I thought it was very interesting that she decided to up the ante and not lower it uh, by literally spraying him in the face with the bug spray. And that, I mean, that spelled her doom, ultimately. And it ended up with her blood being mixed with her milkshake. And that's never a place you want to be. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. I've abandoned my child. <laughs> well, I, I, the whole time I'm watching this thing, I'm thinking, I don't think, I mean, I understand she realized that Rye is not the brightest crayon, you know, in the box. But come on. I mean, you think the way she handled it was t- almost like she was asking for it. I was like, no, this, she may not be that bright. Well, I feel like it was this kind of thing, and I think that this is the point that we're supposed to get about the characters, that he's just constantly underestimated. And I think Ziggy Sabaka from The Wire is a really good shorthand for this guy who just really thinks very highly of himself. Everybody else looks at this guy and sees a joke. And it's one thing to, you know, mock the joke and poke at the joke, but to actually spray bug spray into the eyes of the joke is going to get you shot if that guy has a gun. Yeah, You know, this was just going to happen. How does she know that this guy is going to be that un? stable he's coming across as just a bit of a dweeb and a dingus and it turns out the dweeb and the dingus has a handgun and she has this great final line where she's just like oh crap, crap. Yep. yeah yeah <laughs> he's like oh, i screwed that one oh jeez oh yeah <laughs> oh jeez yeah that was like the f-bomb for people in fargo yeah. oh, oh crap that's C. really yeah Dude, man. hard c yeah so that's that happens and the way that it all plays out is pretty amazing right? so is this a time where we can start complaining about how really stupid all these people that are in the diner are Oh wow! Because All right, well, it sounds like you want to. <laughs> Way to blame oh my the god! Let's JP. start with let's start with our football star. Can we start yeah. with the football star? Sure. Okay. What the hell is this guy thinking? I mean, okay, this guy, this wacko kid, has got a gun. You're gonna run out there. He has to go up and around the counter to go around the counter with a frying pan. He is he really think this is gonna work? Yeah, he does, obviously, because he's doing it. <laughs> he, he thinks he has a shot. Oh and we find out that this guy has this amazing athletic track record, so he looks out at this little dweebus and says, yeah, I could probably get him with the cast iron pan before he gets <laughs> so, to me. So he scores, 10, he scores 31 touchdowns in the 10th grade, and he thinks, kid with a gun? I could take him out with this. Yeah, I got that. Well, let me just say, let's think about this for a minute. Uh, I know a lot of ex-high school football players. Their glory days are often always uh, their high school football days, and they think very highly of those times. Here's a guy who scored 31 touchdowns as a sophomore, and what's he doing? He's working as a short order cook. Right. right? Yeah. So, of course, he's going to think he's got it in him, and of course, he's going to want the glory, and of course, he's going to you know, think, this is my moment. This is my chance to step up and be a hero again. Like This is not a guy whose uh, best days were ahead of him, I don't think. So, yeah, he's going to try that. Plus, what do you do? Do you sit back and I guess you try to run, but maybe there's not a back door to the place. I don't know. Like you try to do something because otherwise you're going to get shot anyway. So you may as well try to strike while the cast iron is hot. Right. Maybe yeah, but throw I- something, though. Like if you, you start by like throwing an object to stun him. To physically phase him, and while he's been phased with like the tea kettle to the face, then you come and you bash him with the cast iron. Yeah, maybe. Well, you're right. We don't know if there's a back door. Okay, but let's pretend like there's not. Then you wait back there with that frying pan and wait till he comes through the door because this kid ain't that bright anyway, and hit him over the head. That's your move. <laughs> That's your move, right? Yeah, I think my move is probably what the hostess ended up doing, which was just like standing still and just being like, "No." <laughs> Don't shoot me! I'll fill, I'll refill your coffee for you. Yeah, I hated seeing her go. She seemed oh, really sweet. That but, made me really upset. Okay, but I got I got to complain with her too. Oh God! I mean, come on, lady. I mean, okay. So apparently she gets shot and she's still alive. And what does she think she's going to do later on? She's going to just walk out the front door and just hang on. Think out. She should have just stayed still. Yes, yeah, stay, stay still. still. Stay I guess like you don't. I guess you don't read the news, Jeremiah. Well, I do sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I'll just leave it at that. But I'm saying in those moments, I don't think that there's a great way to behave. But it's, it, it is pretty funny that she was a hostess till the end. She was standing by the front door just trying to help the guy, telling well, the guy, you know, like, this is what's going on. I yep. I don't know. It, it is, it's a really difficult situation. The, the thing is, I don't, 
other than us as viewers who know we're watching Fargo, the television show, I don't think anybody in that diner expected that to pop off the way it did. And when, once no. it did, it got really, really bad. He was not a good killer. He was shooting people in the shoulders. He was, he took, it took multiple shots to kill people. Uh, he the, got uh, a steak knife to the back. He got a steak knife to the back. He barely got his gun out. Like this is a guy who didn't, uh, yeah, you're right. I think Josh, the, the key point here is, Everybody's underestimating this guy, even after he already shot the judge. He's right. still somebody that they're underestimating. Right. Yeah, I mean, he gets bug sprayed to the face, and he's still able to... I mean, we, we mocked his, his skills as a killer just now, but he does squeeze off one shot at the hostess after she's running, and he just gets her immediately. Yeah. So he's got, yeah. like, some sort of blessed aim in that moment. But yeah. I do get this feeling this this might be the first time Rye has ever killed anyone. Yeah, I, yeah think that, I think that that might be accurate. I think that that might be accurate. It's not—it's right. not a it big boy. It's not a, not a big boy gun he's carrying around either. That's a kind of a, just a little pistol. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good point. So it's it's intense. It's a it's a crazy scene. The blood in the milkshake is uh, you know we <laughs> joked about that, but it's a real it's it was really kind of a an image that's going to stay with you. I feel like you yeah, know, that's that's sort of the big image of the episode for me. Is her on the table with the blood and the milkshake is just like hard to forget well the whole thing was the whole thing was fantastic though the whole thing the way it was done but we do oh is this our time now we can talk about what happens when once he uh leaves the diner yeah because uh first of all what the hell was the thing with the flying saucer lights thing well, it's oh. FX. It's an it's a it's season two of an FX anthology show. So much okay. like American Horror Story went into Aliens in season two. I think that's where Fargo. Uh, okay. I got a better idea. His dad <laughs> is a Cylon. Oh, stop! Oh. Stop! Stop! This is verging into dangerous territory. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, no, no. <laughs> there is a high possibility there that uh, every 33 minutes or so something might happen in that. Is area. Rye the fifth? I, well, he might be. We did. We need to listen for the theme to play in the background. <laughs> mm, <okay. laughs> All along the walk. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that, I, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Is it something because of the drugs he took? Is he hallucinating? Oh. Like, what's going on there? Well, yeah. I mean, I've I have never imbibed in the kind of thing that he seems to be doing there. I don't believe, though, that there's a crazy visual component to that sort of drug. If that's in fact cocaine, maybe not. Yeah. It could be laced with something. Uh, there could be something else going on there. Uh, but even still, I'm not sure that it would take effect that quickly. Right. Yeah. But he's seeing stuff. It's weird. It's a very <laughs> strange thing. And I wonder: is Fargo? going to dabble in ufos in some no. capacity antonio do you think that that's where we're going at all no i think that it's more about the kind of unexplained and the kind of things that you know that you see and you don't really know the answer to or you don't really have a good uh good explanation for how something like that could happen and i think really what we're looking at with this is the sort of unmitigated evil which is probably going to descend on this town is going to be the same kind of thing where it's hard to explain where this where this is coming from it almost seems and will seem extra or otherworldly uh, because it's so foreign uh, to what is you know they're used to or what they expect. I mean, you get the sense from this episode, I think, that big, big bad things are about to go down in this area. Things that are well above the scope of what the local police have dealt with and have seen. We know about it because in Fargo season one, of course, uh, a lot of things were referenced, uh, and we don't really know exactly how they're connected to this season yet. Uh, but this is a this is a bad bad thing that's about to happen. And it's almost so bad that it, it, it defies explanation. It's not the sort of thing that, you know, people are used to seeing in these areas. That said, I did think it was interesting because the ages of the characters, they've probably seen combat, especially the male uh, police officers, some of them maybe even Vietnam. We have to yeah, think about 1979. They talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They talk about it a little bit. There's a little bit of discussion there. So maybe there are a little more hardened to these things than Bob Odenkirk, for example, uh, is in season one where he's right. wearing his big babushka hat and just basically saying, oh, geez, everywhere at the crime scene. Yeah, the sight of blood makes him nauseous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, but maybe that's what it is. Maybe that. Maybe it's just a more of a, uh, you know, just a thematic thing. Well, yeah, that's very true. And I was thinking too. Too bad Rai is is no longer with us because we could first we well, want to see if whether or not his face looks like he was sunburned, and he be started making uh, replicas of the Devil's Tower in mashed potatoes. Then we might have <laughs> be honest something here. Unbelievable. <laughs> if he but goes no, to actually, another. And all joking aside, though, you know, during this time period in American history, uh, there was a lot of 
discussions about UFOs and people seeing like, you know, felt like they've seen lights in the sky, which did influence people like Spielberg to make close encounters of the third kind. And maybe it might've been just like a little funny callback to that again, to this era of time where there was just even more discussions has ever been about whether or not there's life out there. I don't know. I'm just maybe yeah. shooting at her, but yeah. what do you think? Yeah. And then the other possibility is there's just straight up aliens are coming to Fargo this season. That'd be awesome. Mm. Could yeah. be. I mean, aliens are, are pretty hot properties. I mean, we also had a zombie-esque moment with Rye kind of banging into the wall in the garage. So That got, was amazing. Got a little bit of everything in this episode. Yeah. Aliens, zombies. We need some mummies. I want some yeah. mummies. Yeah, okay. So yeah. I don't think I don't think aliens are happening, but if anyone can pull it off, I mean, it, they got they got Fargo so right in season one, let's get a little weird in season two. So, But it, uh, we'll it did set up for him dramatically getting hit by the car which was great <laughs> yeah that was great i didn't see that coming and i don't know what that says about me but i didn't see him getting hit by the well, car ride did, apparently didn't see it coming either <laughs> no he did not he did not and so did you think that was going to happen no yeah. <laughs> no i just was like in the surprised. middle of the episode too and he's like really the only character we've spent any time with yet. yeah so for him to just get plucked off the field right after he's done this thing that he hasn't even been able to process or desperately try to cover up for him to just get smashed by a car was kind of a shock yeah uh, so we go from there to the Salverson household where Lou Salverson, now played by Patrick Wilson instead of Keith Carradine. Uh, you're a Patrick Wilson fan, Antonio. Are you happy with this so far? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I Very much so. I think that he's got the right kind of frame for Speaking Lou. Speaking of night owls, right? Yeah, exactly. Good call. He's got the <laughs> – this is very funny. Right. He, he actually has the right kind of uh, – he carries himself well. There was, a, I think, a little character note where he was – kind of stressed in one moment was tying and untying a uh, knot. And I, that's something that, that uh, Carradine did in season one. And I noticed that and I thought, well, that's a great little connection. Carradine was always tying and untying his, uh, his apron at the diner. Uh, and I just, I, little connections like that mean a lot to me. I actually really like the uh, idea that Ted Danson is, is the, is her father. Uh, I thought that was a great kind of little connection. Yeah, that was great. Because when they first interacted with each other in the diner, I thought, well, these guys have an interesting relationship. They're speaking, and saying a few words, but they're saying a lot more between each other that, that's unspoken. Uh, yeah. And what's going on between these two guys? Is it kind of a state uh, versus local relationship or what? And then to come to find out that that's his father-in-law, I thought that that was pretty great too. Yeah, they had a very sweet and soft relationship, I think, because obviously uh, Ted Danson's daughter is going through a deal. You know, she has cancer, we find out, and Lou is obviously uh, reeling from that. And, you know, you see so often in fiction, like the, the father-in-law, son-in-law dynamic, where there's friction there, and it's just kind of a tense relationship. And in season one of Fargo, Lou Salverson was very kind and accepting and of, of Gus. Yes. And of Gus and of Gus's daughter, who he mm -hmm. you know treated as his granddaughter, called her, called her his granddaughter on multiple occasions. So I like seeing that there's a little bit of con a connective thread in Lou's own experience with a father-in-law, who is obviously a you know a comforting presence in his life. I like that that's kind of a, a call ahead to to what we saw in season one. I think that's a really cool dynamic. Yep, I agree. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, what about this book he's reading to Little Molly? There seemed to be something a little funny about this book. What are you talking about, Josh? Dude. There's, some, there's some weird, some weird word choices, maybe. Um, tell us more. Uh, are you planting a seed, or what are you doing? No, 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 no. no? no. You watch the episode. You all know what we're talking about. I, do, I don't. I should, Jeremiah, you should interrupt uh, me. Perhaps in, in, in like, yeah, in a, in a way that you, was, you were going to do it. You were going to say it in a way that is perhaps like loud and uh, you know just that kind of in the middle of what I'm speaking. You should just talk, uh, and then we could say that you interrupted me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I I did. I love too the way that Lou stops at a moment and looks at the cover of the book and goes like this odd look on his face, like. What is this book yeah. exactly? It was great. I just, yeah, I love how he just looks at Molly and goes, this is a funny book. Huh? Yeah, exactly. And she's just like, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I got in a big, big trouble, by the way, uh, when oh. I think I was probably like a high school freshman or a eighth grader or something. We had to read aloud in class. And there was a line like that, and I uh, I read it in a way that it was not intended to be read, uh, and it was uh, it, w it went over really well with the other students, but it did not go over well with the uh, professors. What was the book? So we can. I think it was a, it was a Sherlock Holmes story, and uh, I believe it was just like a Holmes uh, Watson says, and then uh, the the direction says I ejaculated, and then I I read it out like Holmes, I ejaculated. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and I got in I mean, big trouble for that. <laughs> big, big trouble for that. Uh, too much. Wow. Too much. That's, too much has been revealed just now. Line readings. It's all about uh, the line readings. It's my very friends. important. More, to get it right. more fun yeah. backstories of Antonio Mazzaro. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I like to stuff. speak quickly and suddenly. What can I say? Okay. All right. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> What do we what do we think of um, having young six year old Molly Salverson in in the picture? This is good. This is we're, we're liking this. This is fun. I think it's fantastic. It was great. I mean, I had heard rumors that we might get to see her, and, and I was it was it was definitely glad to get to see her. I mean, uh, it makes sense, obviously, and uh, so this is be interesting. Maybe you get to see a little bit of what Lou's or how Lou was as as a father to a young child. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that relationship kind of blooms a little bit and see uh, how the whole thing plays out. So it's, I thought it was great. What do you, what do you think? No, I liked it. It was great. I'm yeah. very excited about this. I'm very excited because uh, Molly was so good. Uh, so, so good at solving crimes. I mean, she really her in her deductive mind was fantastic. She, it, what's really funny is I was rewatching season one and about the only detail she gets wrong is she keeps thinking that it was murder for hire. And I love right. that because she can't comprehend that it was just crazy evil person that that doesn't make logical sense. And Lauren Malvo is not a guy who makes logical sense. So that's the only part that she can't comprehend. She literally gets the rest of it. And even at, at times she's like, you're gonna have to follow me here. This is a little bit out of left field. I'm spitballing, but she's always nailing the details of the crimes. That sort of mind is not something that just appears. She wasn't just born in season one. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see her home life, if her mother or father, if they engage with her in that way, if, the, if we get some kind of sense of who Molly was at that age and how she developed to be the person that we knew from season one. I, I'm, I'm dying to see that. Yeah, well, I, I thought there was a lot of signs early on that we could tell that I think that she gets it from her mother. I think we're going to see a lot more of, mo- of mom helping out Lou, that you know Betsy helping out Lou solve this crime because she seems to be pretty pretty smart lady. I have a feeling that we're going to learn that Molly learned a lot of her traits from her mother, which is yeah, going to be great. Did you guys pick up on that too? Yeah, she seems really smart. I, I think that Lou seems like a really great cop, though. Uh, you know, we only knew we only know Lou Salverson as the guy who flips burgers at a diner right now. Right. We, on, we only know him as the Keith Carradine guy with the limp, and he hasn't been a policeman for a very long time. He went through some shit at Sioux Falls that it seems like we're going to be driving at this season. Right. Um, all of that went down. And we just don't know what he was like as a police officer. But he just like straight up divines like, all right, so the killer, he got stabbed with a steak knife. He limped away. How did he know about the steak knife? Like, how did he put that together so quickly? That's um, true. That so was there's just quick. like li- little, little tiny things that it, it's cool to see that Lou was really sharp and smart right away. And also very much a, a courageous guy who owns his stuff. Like he has this moment between him and Ted Danson's character where they're like, should this be a local matter or a state matter? And they're like, nah, we want this. We want to do this. We want to take this on. So I like that. I think that he's a good cop so far. Yeah, I agree completely. Oh yeah. I know. I, I, I definitely think he's a, a smart cop. I just think that we're also going to find out that, that Betsy was, is also a very, very bright person. So no, she seems cool. She seems cool. Uh, and it see and it seems like we will. What do you think? She's gonna. We're gonna watch her die this season. Yeah, I sure think so. And that's I very hope not. You think you think that it'll just be like a, a foregone conclusion at some point after this season? She didn't make it. Yes, I don't. Think I, think I don't. We're watch I don't her think die. we'll see her die. Uh, I, I I'm with Antonio. Oh wait, yeah. do we have a do we have a bet going on here already? Well, we'll have a death draft later on. Okay, you know, all right, we'll you do know the how death this draft. Works. Okay. But she, I think that she's got to be immune from the death draft. I think that that's cheating. Yeah, because I think that's because we know in the future she's not going to be immune. right. We already uh, know a little bit too about the future, and we also know that this is this whole thing that happens is what the reason why Lou decides to get out of the police business. So it's obviously going to be pretty ugly, and like Antonio said, it's just going to get worse from here. Well, I hope that it's just natural causes. I hope it's just it's the the disease runs its course and nothing even more grim comes this way. That would be that would be too much, too too intense, too intense. I hear you. Well, I mean, but it is. I I, I should add, like there is a great connection with Molly. Uh, with season one, where she is so taken with the fact that Gus has a daughter, uh, a little bit older, the mom's not around. Uh, she really embraces that. A lot of people in, in a similar situation would feel very uncomfortable by that. It might be a deal breaker in a lot of relationships. Yeah. Uh, she's all about it. And I think it could be partially she's all about it because she lost her mom at a similar age uh, and therefore understands what it's like 
to be without and and knows kind of the notes to hit uh, that that Gus's daughter will need for support. So there is an interesting connection there, too, that I think we're going to see play out a little bit more with uh, the relationship with Molly and, and Betsy. Yeah, I think what's great about this show is that it's all coming from, you know, one creative vision, that it's all the Noah, Noah Hawley show, and he has other people who are helping him with writing and directing and all of this stuff, but he knows these characters inside and out. He knows the world that he established in season one. He's stretching it out further by going back in time in season two, and I like that we're starting to see some of these relationships and how they formed back in season one. I think that we're going to be getting sort of the pillars of that here in season two. I think it's cool stuff. Yep. All right. Uh, there's a scene at the butcher shop, but before we get to that, I think we can deal with those people all in one chunk. Let's just get to, to bingo night. Can we do bingo night real quick? We really just want to get to bingo. Let's do <laughs> I it. I really want to get to bingo because we have talked about this. We talked about this in the preview. We talked about this a little bit here in this podcast already that there's a Cohen-esque quality to Fargo. It's bigger than just Fargo being adapted. It's more of like, what does a Coen Brothers movie look like as a 10 hour TV series? And I love that we're getting a John Goodman character. And I love that it's Nick Offerman. I can't believe that Ron Swanson is the new John Goodman. It's so good. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. Yeah. Was that immediately apparent to you that they were just doing a big Lebowski call out with this type of character? Not quite. I mean, I'm a, I'm as big a big Lebowski fan as it gets. I've been to multiple Lebowski fests. I've gone in costume. I've participated in trivia contests. I'm a big, 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 big Lebowski fan. And I, I didn't, I didn't peep it right away. I got to admit, I didn't peep it. Biggest Lebowski fan. Yes. Well, I, I feel really bad because I just recently watched the big Lebowski for the first time and I didn't even pick up on it at all. And you'd think I would, so they just seen it. Yeah, it's great. I'm very happy with this character. I think that having Nick Offerman on Fargo, this is just like this show attracts great talent and really, you know, solid known names. But to get Nick Offerman on here, it's it's like it's like casting Bob Odenkirk in season one. It's just like getting a great, very funny character actor who's doing really well for themselves right now to play this role on the show. Very exciting stuff to have this guy here. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to his conspiracies. I mean, he, I think he was being portrayed a little bit as a coot there, uh, but yeah. I got to say, I, I kind of agreed with everything he was saying. So I don't know. Well, what, what that was makes he me. saying? Break it down for us, dummies. He was really just talking about how um, military-industrial complex leads and drives a lot of decisions that are made uh, with regard to foreign policy decisions that are made uh, in politics, etc., etc., etc. I mean, his theory, his, his discussions were really just about like, oh, money, uh, money causes all these political problems and all these decisions i didn't i didn't think he was saying anything too outrageous of course he got into his kennedy assassination theories which if you want to sound like a crackpot just start talking about the kennedy assassination yeah (laughs) so that's where he lost me but the rest of it it made a little bit of sense and who's his buddy because he's like the steve buscemi character right he's the donnie donnie yeah yeah Yeah, so so this guy's gonna have a heart attack in the parking lot and be turned into ash and get covered all over Salverson and Carl Weathers. He certainly seemed to be out of his element. It's funny, yeah. You didn't. You just kind of uh, mentioned it there very casually. Yeah, his name is Carl Weathers. Yeah, his name is Carl Weathers. <laughs> it's mean, great. That's how that is pretty awesome. Going. Yeah, his name is Carl Weathers. This episode is called Waiting for Dutch, Dutch being the name of Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in Predator. And last season, there was lots of references to Predator. So I'd like to think that Fargo takes place in the Predator universe. Wow. So this brings everything together. And the UFO. I was just going to say the UFO. Holy (laughs) cow. So we're going to find out eventually the Predator will get involved in this massacre. Yeah, maybe one of maybe they'll get one of the Predator actors to play uh, the governor of North Dakota. (laughs) Well, maybe so. And get be, Jesse Ventura in here. I was gonna say, yeah, there, Jesse Ventura would be perfect. That'd be pretty good. But yeah, <laughs> this is this is a good character, and he's he's obviously I I don't know what the connection between him and Lou is. Antonio, did you pick that up at all? No, they're bingo buddies. I mean, bingo that's buddies. all I got. They're just they're kind of bingo drinking bingo buddies. bros. Yeah, bingo, bingo bros. bros. You know, they obviously have both been <laughs> Bing through bros. Did you they both Bing Bros. <laughs> They've both been through war. You know, maybe they know each other from that. I don't really yeah. know what the connection is. They don't seem like obvious friends. Yeah. I it was a little odd. For for a second I thought maybe he was maybe uh, the one of the deputies or something less off duty. 
you know, like they all work together. But then again, the, the more he kind of looked at through the scene, I think he may maybe just old friends, like you said. But it was they did have an interesting relationship. It seems like. Yeah, it's mm. strange to see Nick Offerman rocking the Abraham Lincoln, just rocking the strap, no stash. I thought mm. that as well. That's that's never a great look. I think you have to be a certain kind of person to pull it off, like uh, Abraham Lincoln, like. Like Abraham Lincoln, like Johnny Mac from Big Brother this summer. I think you, to pull off the, <laughs> the chin beard, no mustache, you really have to be a certain kind of person. Of course, Nick Offerman, famous for his facial hair uh, escapades. So I think anything really works on Nick Offerman. So it works for him. He looks like a he looks like a lumberjack a little bit, and I think that that's uh, that's something you can expect in this milieu for sure. Well, used to it. I did grow one last summer, and I don't want to brag or anything, but you were in chin strap mode. I did the chin strap thing for a while, and uh, I don't want to brag, man, but I I think I nailed it. It was pretty good. Should I show you? I can send you pictures if you want. Yeah, send me pics. What, <laughs> how, what was the result of this chin strap, Jeremiah? Did you get all the ladies? Like, uh, how does? It, oh, how do you man, judge your to, success? I had to fight them off, man. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a married man, so I'm married spud. I had to really, uh, you know, I had to tell the ladies I'm sorry I'm taken, but whew, they were. They were just all over it. I oh, mean, my it God. It was great. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I could do, like, the chin strap neared, but that's as good as I'm going to get. <laughs> it's not a good look. The thin strap. Look. Yeah, thin strap. Yeah. Now, strap. In, all, in all honesty, I drew it as a joke to play a little joke on Big Brother, but uh, I was going to shave it off immediately because I thought it was so terrible, but the, but the wife was digging it, so I had to keep it. You kept it. Kept yeah, it. kept it for the lady. All right. Now your mission for the Fargo podcast is you have to grow it back. Okay, I will. Right, Just so for you. This is this is your podcasting season beard that you must grow for us. Awesome. Um, all right. So we, it takes us this long into the episode. I mean, he's been introduced a little while earlier, but it takes about this long for us to get into the Jesse Plemons storyline, the Kirsten Dunn storyline, Ed and Peggy. Um, I was I, I was surprised that it took so long for us to get to know him. I mean, it's going to be a 10-hour season. We'll have plenty of time to get to know these characters as long as they're around. But for them to show up so late in the episode, I was a little surprised that we were coming at this so late. Yeah, especially since I kind of got the feeling they were obviously going to be major characters in this season. So I was a little surprised that we saw that we didn't get to see anything to them until kind of late. But, you know, that's, I guess, just the way how it's set up for the narrative in this particular episode. But uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was so late. What do you think about yeah. that, Antonio? Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't surprised actually. I, cause I didn't know what their, what their tie in was going to be. And it, of course, if you think about it, Peggy does actually show up a little bit earlier. Uh, we just didn't realize it was her because we see her driving her car. Right. Uh, we just didn't know it was her. And I, I actually kind of prefer that because this, this scene needs to kind of happen the way it happened. You need to have him come home and there's a noise. What's that noise? Uh, oh, you don't think. Like, what, what could it be? You know, like, what is that noise? And I don't think this, that, that plays off as well. I, I, I think the violence of that next scene was, was well placed within the context of the episode. So I didn't very think good that, point. I didn't think it would have been, like, it wouldn't have made as much sense coming right off the other scene. And then you wouldn't really have had much at the end of the episode, violence wise. I, I think that the pacing of that narratively was better. And I also like with Fargo that they're pretty confident. I, I, we, there was a great tweet, uh, that made me really excited from this season, uh, from the Hollywood reporters, Daniel Feinberg. And, uh, Daniel tweeted something to the effect of, um, some of his, like his top four characters of this season don't even speak, uh, in the premiere. Uh, wow. So it's like, wow, if that's true, then we're in for a really great season uh, on Fargo. If we've got great characters who aren't even on this episode or who maybe were on the episode but don't really speak. Um, and I think about Fargo, the first season, a lot of the really memorable characters are great characters. We're not people that you got right off the top. Sure, you got uh, Molly right away. Sure, you got Gus right away. Uh, we saw Lester and Malvo. But what made Fargo so great wasn't just those people. It was everyone else that was kind of in and around the story. And some of those characters become far more prominent after the first episode. So I think it's important that we got Todd and Peggy. I think no matter the fact that it was later in the episode. I love that you just called him Todd. You just can't help yourself. I can't help myself. I even typed <laughs> Todd in my notes, I mean, uh, and that's why I read it that way. That's really weird. What's his name? Is his name Landry? His name is Ed. But oh. is he more? Is he more Landry? Or is he more Todd? I think we're seeing more season two Landry. I think that was a, a classic season two Landry hat. Oh yeah, that's a Landry murder. That's a Landry murder for sure. That's murder. It's a Landry. reluctant, a reluctant kill. I didn't mean to do it. I kind of had to do it. The anger took over. What can I do? Yep, yep. That's a Landry kill for sure. But I really like that. Even though no retconning this one. No retconning. This is not. This is going to happen. This is part of the story. This is not. Yeah. Something that goes away. I, I just, I really like that we learned a lot about those characters, even though it was late in the episode. We didn't need multiple scenes 
to really establish the fact that she's a little bit intense in terms of the things that she wants, but she's also kind of dim, uh, and he's kind of dim too, uh, and pretty simple-minded and wants very simple things, and he had a plan to buy the butcher shop, and that's that. Uh, and she's kind of not on board with that. She seems to have more grandiose dreams and desires. And so I really like that right away we get that. I also, what, what the heck was her plan here? Uh, because I really loved the sequence where we see her hit him and drive, put him in the car and drive back. And when she first puts him in the car, she's so a little calmly. horrified. Yeah. When she's driving back, she's totally cold-blooded about it. That's crazy. So chill. Yeah. So chill. Yeah. Yeah, she's, well, she says, like, I'm a little traumatized here. You know, it was a really kind of screwed up thing that happened here. I didn't yeah. panic. That. I didn't well, sense it. I sensed that she was a little more cold-blooded. Once yeah. you get the sequence of how things played out, though, we get to see the whole thing play. You could tell she was not troubled at all. She walked calmly back into the house and starts with, with the magazines and then clean off her blouse. I mean, this is a woman who... Almost kind of like, oh, well, I'll figure out a way to take care of it, you know. Well, I, th- I think that there are a couple of reads on that. I think that that's absolutely a read. It wasn't my first read. My first read was that she was so shell-shocked by the thing that she was just trying to be like, well, back to business. Everything's good. Everything's fine. Nothing happened. Everything's normal. Everything's okay. And it was yeah. just like kind of like a completely cutting out the fact that this thing just happened. And it's just like a, a you know, instant traumatic reaction. Uh, I think that that's one possible reading of it. And then the other reading is you guys are right and she's cold blooded and there's something a little more calculated about this or like, I'll deal with this. I'll have, I'll have my husband come home and take care of this a little bit further. And it makes you wonder if she's a little bit more manipulative than she appears to be in the episode, at least in her, in terms of her words, in terms of what she's saying. But she is the one who is urging Ed, like, well, we got to cover him up. If you want this life that you're after, if like you want us to buy the shops and have the kids and start our family here, we're going to have to get rid of the body. Uh, and so whether or not that's just like her an, an authentic panic, panic mode, mm-hmm. or if this is her driving at something. Yeah. Whether it was panic or not, she, I mean, she clearly did not want Ed to know about it at first. So, I mean, I don't know if she had plans like that she thought she could take care of this thing without Ed involved. But, I mean, she, you know, she clearly, I mean, she was really willing to ready to have sex right, just to keep him from going out there to see what had happened. So, right. I don't know. But, but she, I think that leans more toward points. But she left it there, like, uh, for it to be, I don't know what. I don't know what her what her plan is. And that, right, to right. me, leans more toward dim. Like, I just think that she has these great grand plans, but I'm not sure if she's smart enough to pull it off. And I say that as a huge fan of the Coen Brothers material. That is a female, male, uh, old, young, doesn't matter. It knows no bounds within the Coen Brothers overall, if you will. Like, they are, their works are full of characters who think they're way smarter than they are, have grand plans to pull things off and are stupid about it, uh, and get, get themselves into big messes as a result of uh, greater self-opinions or ideas than they can really pull off. We saw it a little bit with Rye earlier. He was freelancing, trying to prove some things, trying to, and he got in over his head. We see how that ended. I think we're going to see a story this season about this couple here being in over their head and trying to be bigger than they are uh, and getting into trouble as a result of it. It's a classic Coen Brothers story, and I think we could easily see that playing out here. Yeah. Yeah. So the. Yeah, Jeremy, no, I was going to say, it. no, it's that you're absolutely right, because, you know, last season we had uh, Nest, uh, Lester filled that role, and then you think about the movie, we had Jerry who filled that role. I mean, you're, like, you're, you're absolutely right. Characters who think that they can handle it, but they obviously have no business uh, messing with uh, any of this stuff. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that that seemed to be what the Rye character was representing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the guy who gets taken out to fuel the story of the new bumbling idiots. Uh, so I think that that's, that's kind of clever. So you think that that's where we're going? You think, wh- where does the, where does that lead them, Antonio? Does this get them on a collision course with the Gerhards? Is it a collision course with the law? Is it a collision course with both? I think it's all. And, and then yeah. I think also a collision course with Kansas City at some point, depending on how much they come at the Gerhards or what their response to some of that stuff is uh and you've got a lady Macbeth kind of element to it too because she's sort of whispering sweet somethings in his ear about you want that life like you were saying jeremiah like she's really kind of feeding like well if you want to do this this we're gonna have to do this and it's sort of not quite a landry uh tyra scenario like uh, that isn't exactly how that played out but landry did do what he did in service of caring about this woman uh, and so it's really interesting to see that playing out again for this poor jesse plemons character he can't resist he cannot resist he loves that story yeah he wants Redemption for Friday Night Lights season two. 
He's like, I want to do, I want to do that story, but better this time. So let's do, let's go back to 1979 and give it another shot. So we'll see how that goes. You mentioned the Kansas City thing real quick. We see the Brad Garrett character. Uh, these these guys in Kansas City, these mobsters, they want to move in on what the Gerhards have. They basically own trucking and distribution for the entire northern Midwest. Uh, we want to take that. We want to take that away from them. That's that seems to be the plan, and it's either going to be uh, tactically trying to pit the brothers against each other or, or the mother against the, bu- the brothers because, you know, we've got this unique situation where Otto had his stroke and things are kind of in disarray. Or if we can't manipulate the situation, if we can't buy him out, we're going to liquidate him. Uh, so, yeah, war seems to be coming to Fargo this season. And it's going to yeah. be epic. And it's, it's really totally unrelated to the, the car accident. It really is that, that what's happening with Kansas City seems to be solely as a result of one organization's desire to grow and somebody having a stroke. Uh, and in the midst of that, you also have this other story about this car accident that happened where other people's lives are going to be involved now, people who aren't, in, you know, who aren't criminals. Uh, and if you think about it, this, this is uh, Fargo season one has a very similar story where, it isn't clear to Numbers and Wrench if that's what their names. I can't remember what their names are specifically, yep, but Numbers and Wrench. It isn't clear to Numbers and Wrench exactly what Lester's role in this is. How is he related to what happened with Sam Hess? Did he kill Sam Hess? Like, what's the deal there? But it, it doesn't help Lester out at all that he that he didn't that he wasn't part of organized crime and he didn't make a move from an organized crime standpoint. It doesn't help him out at all. So it's not going to help out Peggy uh, and and Mr. Landry slash Todd slash whatever you want to call Jesse Plemons Ed. <laughs> in this case uh it's not going to help them out that that they were just wrong place wrong time uh with regard to kansas city they're going to be just as perceived to be part of the mix as anybody else and uh, they're you know that's the kind of people that it's like oh well it was uh it was collateral damage no it's not collateral if you involve yourself directly in the matters yeah Yeah. it's one of those things where clearly ed and peggy should have probably done the right thing and call the police and say hey this happened I hit this guy accidentally, blah, blah, blah. And by the end of this series, I'm sure they're going to look back and wish they would have done that because yeah. I think, right, it's going to lead to some really bad stuff to happen for these two. I think at least one of them is going to look back by the end of the series, but I don't think both of them are going to make it till the it's end. good point, yeah. All right, well, that's a great segue. Let's wrap this sucker up by doing our death draft. This is what we like to do in all these these first shows of these post-show recaps podcasts. We tend to get a little, a little lethal. We try to plan. We try to plan our flags, as Antonio would like to say. Who is going to make it out of this thing alive? Who is not? Let's do the death draft. I'm, I'll pick last because I picked. I I, I won the the True Detective uh, death draft. So, so you're cho- you're choosing to go last. Who goes first? Uh, I think that uh, Jeremiah should go first. All right, Jeremiah, oh, you get to boy. pick first, and let's take the mother out of it because she's doomed. Uh, and obviously, I would recommend that you don't pick anyone who you know is going to make it to the season one of Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> Just a recommendation if you were in thinking. A good about pick, it. a bit yeah. bold move. Yeah. I would, I would not pick Lou Salverson. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, definitely can't pick Lou. Yeah, yeah that obviously. Um, all right, so def. Oh boy, who do I want? And this is gonna. How is this gonna work this time? Is this still who we were trying to figure out who's gonna pick the person Same who deal. dies first? Yeah, no, you're just trying to pick somebody who's going to die. Or just anybody's going to die. Okay. Score points. You score points for the death, and then if you want to earn a bonus point, you can uh, you can predict their method of death. Ah, okay. All right. Very good. I'm going to go with Jesse's character, Ed. I don't think Ed is going to make it out. I think he is going to find his way by a bullet. Oh, okay. I had Ed being beaten to death with a frozen piece of meat. Is that right? That's what that was. That was going to be my pick. Well, we didn't talk about this actually. Did you did you spot any guns in drawers, Antonio? Anything that we should be looking out for? You know, we always like to look out for Chekhov's insert thing here. Uh, and in Fargo season one, it's not something that we were podcasting at the time, and it's not something we mentioned in our post mortem on season one and our preview of season two. But it's something that Noah Hawley talked about a lot. How everyone thought that the machine gun was going to come back into play, and instead, it's the bear trap that's hanging in the armory as well. You're just not paying attention to it, but every Every time that the armory is open, the bear trap is there. And that's going to be the thing that really is Malvo's undoing. Did you see anything like that that you think is going to get fired off in the final act of season two? Well, I don't know about the final act, but I, I am buying into this uh, this frozen meat kind of thing. The meat and packages, they're deep freeze that they throw uh, the character into. The sausage grinder is going to be the new wood chipper. You like yeah. the sausage grinder. I, I just like the, a, a frozen piece of meat just bashing someone over the head with it. I mean... 
that to me there was a I think there's a classic Alfred Hitchcock presents about a uh, it probably is about a woman who murders her husband with like a lamb chop and yeah. then she cooks it up and serves it to the police when they show up and they can't figure out what the murder weapon was. That's right. So I I think that we we have a possibility of a connection there. I I actually when I watch Fargo I was all over the bear trap, but only because a bear trap features prominently in the movie uh, both movie versions of Straw Dogs. And that's a very, very violent John Cassavetes film. Uh, I think it was John Cassavetes. But, yeah, it's a very, very violent film with Dustin Hoffman where a bear trap is just constantly used as a weapon. And I just had a feeling that we were going to see that bear trap come into play. Uh, but I thought the machine gun was also going to come into play. Uh, and so I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking the wrap piece of meat. I'm thinking of frozen wrap piece so of meat. So we're thinking like Sopranos meat packing kind of thing, right, where someone – you know, yeah, that they use the meat packer grinder or something to grind one of these people up. You guys are going human meat and wheat and meat and, wheat and, and wood. Well, chipper. once you go human meat, you can't go back. Oh my gosh! Well, I'm never <laughs> once going. You have the I'm, taste of human that's meat. What I've heard. I'm never eating at that uh, restaurant. Everyone's talking about terminus. I'm never eating. Yeah. yeah, it's no good. It's no good. All right, I'm going to take my pick. I'm going to take Brad Garrett's character. Brad Garrett just seems like a guy who comes to Fargo to get killed. Joey yeah. Bulo. Yeah, I think, think Joe Bulo is. Joe's going to get it. I think Joe. I think Joe's gonna get it, and I will say uh, frozen meat to the face. Oh, I like the nice. frozen meat. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll say frozen meat to the face. I know that I'm getting that wrong, but I'm just gonna say it. So, Brad Garrett, Joe Bulo, frozen meat to the face. Oh, That's my no, day. you guys have taken. See, this is the thing. I purposefully handicapped myself, and now I'm really paying for it. Well, you'll probably win. Uh, oh, absolutely, he'll win. He's the Yellow King. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna, That's I'm gonna go with uh, Jeffrey Donovan, Dodd Gerhardt. I think he's gonna bite it as part of this uh, ongoing uh, family war. Mm, and I, I think it's gonna be. Uh, I think he's gonna. Um, he's gonna get stabbed with. Uh, oh, let's see. Um, what would be something that might be lying around in the situation where he might get stabbed? Uh, I think he's gonna get stabbed in the eye with like a some kind of uh, grilling fork. Gross. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm ready. Maybe for the it. I think stabbed in the eye, and then yeah, like repeatedly, and then he's dead. Gross. I just I can't it. imagine too many of any, anybody from this family. Not there's not going to be very many of them that can make it out alive, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that <laughs> Floyd Gerhardt, Gene Smart's character. I think that she is going to uh, poison herself with a shot of apple pie. Oh, Ooh. it was already in the jar. It was already in the jar. All right, and that's one podcast in the can. Anything else about Fargo's season two premiere? Anything, you guys? What did we miss? What did we not cover? The uh, the final song in the credits uh, didn't leave nobody but the baby. Uh, very kind of uh, not- notable song from the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. Uh, nice. And in this case, nice. I believe it was actually performed by uh, Noah Hawley. Uh, and so I, I had I had seen that on Twitter from the official Fargo account. I Noah think, Hawley or, is a good looking good looking man. He's really got it all going on. He's oh. like he's, new, a, he's, he's a really hip looking dude. He's like the new David ben- Benioff about like guys I'm just going to be jealous of. Oh man, David Benioff is so hot. Yeah, he's just hot. It's and he's really smart uncool. and a good writer, and he's married yeah. to a beautiful woman. And he's happy, and his whole life is great. Up yours, David Benioff. <laughs> no, Holly is a little short, but he is a good-looking lad. He's yeah. really he, short. He looks you... a little bit like Carlton Ke- or Damon Lindelof, actually. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah like, kind of bit. like the perfect merging of Damon Lindelof and Carlton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever met him in what person? You, uh, I I did interview him on the set. It was okay. a fun time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought the same thing then, and I think the same thing now. And you were and crushing on him right away. I was crushing on him immediately. Nice. You guys know me and my crush. Is he is he married to the job, Josh? He doesn't. He's not. He's not a family man. He seems like it. Seems like he's married <laughs> to the job. No, I. Uh, yeah, I think that he was performing in that. Uh, in that. That's final cool. Song. That's awesome. Yeah. So that was a really neat little callback. We'll have to. Uh, any other Cohen Brothers callbacks that were missing or connections, please feel free to. Uh, Leave them in the comments on our our page at Post Show Recaps or tweet them at us. Uh, I'm going to be trying to flag those throughout the season, but I'm sure I'm going to miss as many as I pick up. So by all means, if you're picking up Cohen Brothers Connections, I know I'd love to see them and hear them and talk about them. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're wrapping up here. Do we have a hashtag for this one, gentlemen? Anything? Anything? Reach out and grab you. We can't say Fat Damon, can we? <laughs> we could. We could do Fat Damon. Yeah, we need to do Fat Damon. Oh, that's so sad. I thought that he looked good. I think he looked good, but he's not. It looks like a fat Matt Damon. I mean, there's he no looked like he looked like muscular Damon. Yeah. So you want to call? What do you want to say? Muscular Damon? I don't know. Like beefy Damon. Beefy, beefy. Damon. Yes. Yeah, so let's yeah. go with beefy because it makes sense since he wants to be. A, he's a butcher, right? 
Yeah, perfect, Jeremiah. That's and if perfect. You, and if you want to interpret that as bad, that's your business. If you want to interpret it as someone who's been jacked and has been working out a little bit, that's the that's the interpretation I prefer. Beefy Damon. Okay, that's in the books. Hashtag Beefy Damon. Tweet that to Antonio. He's at AC Mazzaro, two Zs, one R. Jeremiah's at J Panhorst. I'm at Round Howard. Subscribe to what we're doing. Postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. We will have a Fargo-specific feed up for you guys shortly. Otherwise, we'll be back next week talking about episode two. Really excited. This is off to a good start. Very happy with season two so far. Let's keep it up. Good stuff, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye, Bye everybody. <laughs>